A reading from 1 Peter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In the 1980s, in various neighborhoods of Manhattan, you would come across typically people playing a game called Three Card Monte. Usually this happened in uh, neighborhoods that there were more tourists. So the nature of the game is the person leading it has three cards and will show them to you. And usually one stands out. I actually don't know if, if it's a essential that it's certain cards, but let's say, for example, there's a red ace and two black aces, and then the person puts them down in front of you and moves them around, and you place a bet, and then if you find the right card, you win, and if you uh, select the wrong card, you lose. Now, this was a bit of a scam, a bit of a racket where people were taken for their money. There were at least two things that the, uh, the average person playing was likely not aware of. One was that there was a sort of a magic trick involved, a bit of sleight of hand, that there's a skill that you could practice so that as you're shuffling, there's something you can do to, uh, to switch the order of the cards in a way that the average person who's not trained to see it wouldn't see it. So, so on the one hand, it's, it's set up with the likelihood that if you're betting on your ability to focus, that's what it seems to be a, a, a test of. Are you able to focus and follow something moving quickly? Uh, even if you have that skill, you're likely to lose. But the other bit of it is that, that the... Um, the scenario that's created is also not the one you necessarily think you're walking into. So, for example, you, you're curious by a crowd, and you see somebody playing the game, and you observe a few games, and you, you may not be aware that a good portion of that crowd are in on it. They, they come around as part of a team so that way others join in the crowd, and that the, the person or two who you're watching playing are also part of the team. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll uh, you know, play two or three matches where they'll win once and lose twice or uh, win twice and lose once. And the idea of that is to pique your interest and to get you wanting to play. Now, how do they pull you in? Now, you'd think that the main uh, motivation would be greed. And surely enough, maybe that is. You, you think, you know what, I could put $20 down, and if this guy will let me play three or four times, I may w- walk away with 60 or $100. Uh, so, uh, part of it is just the motivation of wanting quick money, but, but I think the, the greater temptation that comes in this situation is pride. Uh, 
more than greed. Because with greed, greed can blind us as any temptation can, so you lose your judgment and discernment. But, but usually, uh, most of us have enough objectivity that if you feel yourself wanting to play because you think you could make a quick killing, there's something that would stop you reasonably to say, but am I assessing the situation right? That sort of can happen within the greedy motive. Sometimes uh, the greed is so great we don't see that. But pride blinds us. And so uh, you would think that the best way to, to fool somebody is to have somebody to keep winning. So if you went and you saw three people go forward and win uh, three times in a row, each of them, your greed might say, I want to be next, except that if you're savvy of how dynamics in a city could work, you'd likely say, this doesn't look right. What incentive does this person have to keep handing 20s away? Um, the way to catch people is not to have everyone keep winning, but to have some of them lose. Because as you're watching and, th and they show the cards and you see where the card goes and the person playing loses, their losing doesn't tell you you're at risk of losing money. It tells you you're better than that idiot who couldn't follow the cards. And so rather than looking and wondering, you know, is there anything suspicious about the situation, uh, with an awareness of your, yourself and your competence, you might say, this is an odd situation, but I could beat it. And that's the vulnerability point. You step in thinking you're smarter than anyone there, and uh, what you're not aware of is how much you've overlooked. Last week, I said that there are many, uh, not many, some of the great minds of Christian history have said the fundamental human problem is pride. Now, we could debate that, whether or not pride is the source of every other problem. But certainly, pride presents a, an area of vulnerability in us that to the degree that pride is at work, it keeps us from seeing, from understanding, from making good decisions. And therefore, there are lots of warnings in the Bible about pride and how it could affect you. And Peter himself, who's writing to Christians who are facing suffering, um, pride could be there whatever our circumstances are, but when our pride fails us, there are certain ways that we find ourselves uh, having difficulties. Peter is writing to people who are facing difficulties and encouraging them to keep going and to not get distracted and not to make poor choices and to not give up. And so one of the things that he does now is we're drawing near to the very end of the letter. We've got two more uh, in this passage, but we're really at the very end is he leaves us with this reminder that one of the things we need to keep going is humility. And so today what I want to talk about is precisely that vulnerability. All of us have pride in us. Now, I'm not talking about a positive sense of being satisfied with, uh, you know, uh, something good that you've done. I'm talking about that radical self-centeredness that, that then uh, causes every relationship to be reoriented around you that that problem is natural to all of us, and therefore all of us uh, are vulnerable. And so where I want to begin this morning is with what I'm describing as pride exploited. And, and the, the issue here that I'm beginning with is, is pride is not simply something that's going to turn people off. You know, people will think you're arrogant and they're not going to want to hang out with you. Or pride is something bad for your own mental health. You know, if you think too much of yourself, you'll constantly be disappointed when reality doesn't conform to it. There are all sorts of reasons why logically we should check our pride. 
Um, but the vulnerability towards exploitation, verse 5 says, God opposes the proud. And, and one of the problems with pride is, is the logical uh, conclusion of it taking over your life is isolation. So this is a gathering of the church. We want to know, are we in fellowship with God? Um, but other people that may not be asking the theological question will still find that pride isolates them from other human beings. There's something about that selfish orientation. Um, but spiritually, uh, pride is ruinous to who we are. So, so Jonathan Edwards, considered by many the greatest American theologian, uh, writing in the 18th century said this. He said, the first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancements of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the mainspring, or at least the main support, of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. So I'm giving that as, as a voice that says, you know, spiritual pride is such a foundational issue that it's gonna cause um, all sorts of other problems. So verse eight says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So there's this predatorial figure in the Bible who, who um, seeks to harass us, to fool us, to uh, manipulate us. So the, the different images or descriptors in the Bible of this figure that here is called the devil, in some places he's called the Satan. He's described as an accuser, a liar, a murderer, a thief, these various things, um, where, where especially when we're in a difficult situation and vulnerable, uh, there's an advantage. That's the time you want to step in and harass. And so one of the places you could read about this is the book of Job. So Job is a story about somebody who suffers greatly. Um, but, but at the intro to the story, we find the same sort of figure in the Bible, this adversary who wants to afflict him. Why? What does he have against Job? And this is the nature. He's, uh, the, the figure in the Bible of the devil is portrayed as a spiteful person. He doesn't care anything about Job. Um, he's not interested in Job. He's not bothered by Job. He just wants to do something spiteful to annoy God. That's sort of how you get this picture in the Bible that he's going to make Job's life miserable simply so that this adversary could be against God. And nearly if he could turn people against God. So this figure here is of an adversary prowling around. Now, if there is somebody who would take advantages of us in our weakness, uh, the prime weakness, the Achilles heel of the human being, is our pride. Um, it messes up with our judgment. It fools us. It keeps us from, from discerning properly. And so, therefore, the warning here is, if you're going through a difficult period, and you will, all people will. Um, so Jesus warns Christians, if you follow me, there will be challenges. He's not saying your life could be wonderful, but if you become my disciple, it would become difficult. He's saying life is inherently difficult. <laughs> And if you become my follower, there will be certain kinds of challenges that you will face, but um, it will be worth it. Um, what we find is that, that part of the growth, once we follow Jesus, is that one of the things that needs to be worked on is our pride. 
And growth in that could be painful. And what that means is any scenario is an opportunity where our pride may come in as our response. And we need to pause and slow ourselves down and say, is, is that actually the thing that's functioning? So over time, you'll learn to ask questions like, how dependent am I on the approval of others? You know, how much is that really driving my happiness or my decisions? Or um, is my happiness tied to status? Do I feel wonderful only when I'm doing well, but never good if I'm not? Um, do I look at others with loathing or with indifference? Do I find that that's uh, just honestly how I see people? Do I look down at others or do I just not care? Those are the signs that pride is at work. Uh, and, and so the question is, what is cu cutting ties between you and people? And, and each of us are different, but for all of us, there's some aspect of this self-orientation that, that we say, ultimately, I'm looking out for me, I'm what matters, and I want God to look out for me, I want people to look out for me, I want people to respect me, I want God to bless me. As isolated statements, each of them can be okay, but with our corrupted nature, with our pride, all of those create a dangerous context. And so, uh, like the three-card Monty player, your greed might be what's pulling you into a situation, but pride is what's gonna keep you um, from getting out of it. It's gonna, it's gonna lead you further in and then leave you um, uh, unable to make sense of what happened. And so, the strategy in verse six is humble yourselves therefore. Uh, this, this aspect of humility needs to be applied all the time, but especially in situations where we're really feeling stretched and squeezed. We need to slow down and say, well, let me make sure that the approval for others is not the dominant thing. Let me make sure that I don't need to uh, humiliate others. Let me make sure that if I'm looking down at people, I'm slowing down and, and, and figuring out what is that? How is it influencing me? How is it um, uh, shaping how I'm thinking? And so in verse 8, it says, be sober-minded and watchful. So there's this adversary that will come around. And, and what that means is sometimes the confusion that we feel or the discouragement that we feel that we think is just a factor of me and my insight um, properly assessing a situation, uh, sometimes that confusion is, is we've lost perspective because of our inherent self-centeredness. And so... Part of being watchful, Romans 12 uh, talks about that. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. So the issue is not that you shouldn't be um, acting in your own good. You should. It, it's not that you shouldn't have a measure of confidence if you know your abilities. Uh, the answer is not, you know, doubt it and become an anxious person. If you know you can do something, do it. It's, it's, it's pride that, in, that inflates the assessment where you start to say, I'm, I'm so invested in me that you lose sight of, of where you're really at and the only measures you're using are the wrong measures. How am I in comparison to others? And so it leads to the problem often as pride isn't working in your life of self-pity and bitterness. And so the, that's evidence that, that something has gone wrong in our thinking, our experience. And one of the first things that we check in those moments is, is where is pride working itself out? And so are we to be exploited by an adversary who would turn us against God and against one another so that we wind up isolated and pushing everyone away and thinking nobody cares and nobody could help? You know, all of us can find ourselves in that situation, but we don't want to get stuck there. It's pride that convinces you that that's the place that you need to remain and that nobody should come near you. 
And at that point, it's not God who is winning in your life, but there's an adversary who is playing a role. So here's the second thing I want to talk about. There's the, the exploitation that comes through our pride of how we're taken advantage of. We're fooled. We're swindled. Uh, but the second thing is humility displayed. And what I have in mind here is that Peter has used the language of testing, kind of like running an experiment. You have an idea of what should happen and you run the experiment and sometimes it proves it right or sometimes you realize uh, you misjudged a few things. And so, so difficulties in life are revealing, they're exposing. They help us to see things um, and sometimes we, we find with greater clarity um, what our assessment is, what we really believe. Sometimes we find ourselves destabilized where we then have to be challenged. What, what do I really believe? What do I hold to? This is what I say I believe, but now this difficulty is squeezing me. But what often happens is um, the worst comes out. For most of us, when um, our pride is failing, we don't become humble, we become dejected. We become angry. What happens when, when all of our aspirations, whether, whether it's uh, you know, uh, the bank account that is our f- future security, whether it's the career path, whether it's the person that had been uh, very flattering to us, in whatever way that it, that it comes, a difficult season where these things aren't working for you, the result is rarely humility, but the result is pride. We, pride turns against us and we wind up dejected, angry, bitter. But Peter provides a, a different way. He's saying, actually, these circumstances which are, are revealing areas of vulnerability where you've been weak and are now making you weaker, there is a different possibility that actually the very circumstances that are exposing your weakness could be the very things that God will use to actually strengthen you. That possibility is presented to us, but how does it happen? And this is where it has to happen in relationship to God because what happens normally is... Uh, the difficulties expose us. I thought that I was a very patient person, and it's just my life was easy. Now that my life is hard, I'm not patient. I thought I was very kind and generous, and I encouraged others until I got so discouraged that now everyone is setting me off. And those are moments where what gets exposed is our need of help, our need of grace, our need of forgiveness, our need of change. The kinds of things where normally we say, I'm okay, and I don't need God, either so much so that I don't even need to believe God exists, or I'll believe God exists in some way so that God could do something in my life, but at the end of the day, I don't really need God. The difficulties of life will um, pull the curtain back on that, so you find yourself saying, well, you need something. What's it going to be? Now, what are your commitments? What do you believe really will ground you? What, what do you believe will give you meaning in life? What do you believe will give you success? Those moments force you to ask that question. And what we're told by Peter is if in those moments, instead of drawing away from God for any reason, you're angry because he's failing you, or you're ashamed and you don't want him to see you, whatever it is, uh, the invitation of scripture is always come back, (laughs) draw closer, and that's where you will find strength. And so we're we're to, to, to draw closer to Jesus who is sent to, to, to find us and to, to call us and to invite us to follow him. And the pattern of Jesus' life is meant to be a pattern of our life. See, the, uh, the, the human aspiration of wherever I am, I want to get straight to the top. There's a bit of pride there. I want to get there quickly so I could be above everyone. 
And what happens is then the alternative is to feel like the fundamental nature of life is that wherever I am, I'm going to sink down and I'm going to wind up in the bottom. Whereas the language of verse 6 is humble yourselves so at the proper time he may exalt you. There's a guy named Paul Miller who, who has a book called J-Curve, so he uses that letter J to say the pattern of Jesus' life was that he descended before he was exalted. His descent was significant, but his exaltation was greater. What we're told is that the pattern of our lives, if we join with Jesus, will follow that, that there's a stage of, of repair, of humble, uh, of, of, of um, being stripped of our pride and our false beliefs. And so there's a process in drawing near to Jesus where it feels like we're going down, and in many cases we are. But this is where faith in yourself needs to be exchanged for faith in God and his goodness. And in joining with Jesus, we're told that he descended, but then was exalted. That if you're with him, and if you're descending with him, um, there's a bottom. <laughs> there's a limit of how far you'll go, and there's a future turnaround. There's a hopefulness. And so what Peter is saying is, uh, to the Christian community, right now it may feel like things are getting worse. No excuses, no spin. Yes, maybe they are. But in it, you're going to learn about your own weakness, you're going to learn about the failings of our world, and you're going to be pressed to find out what you really believe and what your hope is. And what Peter is saying is if you're joined with the one who humbled himself, you will remain joined with the one whom the Father exalted. And therefore, what you're going through can be seen and experienced very differently. When, when your pride is not making you think, why is the world against me? But when you think, why would the world be against God? <laughs> but if God is for me, I don't need to worry about it. That changes our experience. And so you look at your own life and you say, you know what? The challenges of life don't humble me. They humiliate me and they make me hate life and they bring out the worst. Well, what happens when Jesus is tested? And this is where you go and you study the Gospels. And we find from the very beginning of his ministry to the very end, he's constantly tested. He's tested by Satan in the wilderness. He's Fasting, he's without food, and there's the invitation. If you really are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. And in my self-pitying, I would think, well, look, I have this power. If the Father has given it to me, I can do it. Like, why should I, like, wouldn't it be better if I can do this and be fed and strengthened and go back into the world and uh, turn every stone to bread? Wouldn't that be something of the character of Jesus? Wouldn't that be how we might counsel him? Except this was a temptation. The power given for you is not to satisfy this current hunger. And so Jesus found himself uh, tested. And what we found is that he's different from us. He doesn't use his abilities for his own interests. But he was willing not to listen to that voice. And then you find through his ministry, how many times in the conversations it prefaced with the gospel writer saying, and a teacher of the law stood up to test him. This is not just a dialogue, but this is an opportunity where I'm going to poke you in the, in the pub public ministry and find out who you really are. And we find that Jesus never compromises. He never fails. He never misspeaks. Uh, but the greatest test, of course, is, is his crucifixion. All tests seem to be saying there's an easier way. And what's remarkable, when he goes to the cross, you know, uh, as I imagine, wh what was it uh, where we're told Jesus died on our behalf, that we're really supposed to grasp about the nature of what Jesus suffered on our behalf. You know, the thing that strikes me, because I'm a bit of a wimp, 
is the physical sufferings that, that, you know, being crucified. It's one thing to imagine nails being driven through your body, but when you read the descriptions of what it's like to then be posted up and hung, um, so unfathomable that for me to think, wow, that Jesus would do that on my behalf. And yet theologically we would say, but there was something that we can't even see, something about Jesus bearing the weight and penalty of sin that, that we can't grasp, we, that, that we don't have access to. For me, it's the physical pain. But what's interesting, uh, the role of mockery when Jesus is crucified. I think in my rational mind, if you were to ask me, would you rather, if you had to choose between being nailed to the cross or standing there and having people ridicule you, what would you prefer? I'm pretty convinced I would take the ridicule. I don't like ridicule. I don't have a, a thick skin, but I would rather be ridiculed than crucified. But it's interesting, what role would ridicule play in Jesus' life? Well, if Jesus was filled with pride, when they said, if you really are the Son of God, save yourself and us. I think I would find myself thinking, what am I doing up here, suffering with misery when the Father has entrusted me with this power? Maybe if I save myself, wouldn't that be the means of saving others? That's what I would tell myself, but I think what I would likely be thinking is, I need to show these idiots who's boss. They think I can't save myself. Do you know what I'm doing here? I'm not here because I did anything wrong. I'm here because you people did something wrong. This would be my dialogue. Uh, What do you see of Jesus? He's a man of fewer words than I am at the right time. Uh, One of the seven words that we remember on Good Friday as they're nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them. That's always struck me because when Jesus tells us that the sign of God's work in us is not simply that we love the people that are nice to us, but we love our enemies. I think that sounds so good, I want to do that. (laughs) Then I try doing it. And then you look at them saying, Jesus, prove to us you're the Son of God. Come down. And uh, there's somebody named uh, Frederick Bruner who says something in a pithy way that I don't remember exactly how he says it, but he says, something to the effect of the greatest miracle that Jesus performed was the one that he didn't do. (laughs) Meaning, it would have been a remarkable sign if he had the power to come down from the cross. Nobody that I know of in the history of the Roman Empire has been able to do that. Wouldn't that be a great sign? The greatest miracle was the one he didn't do. (laughs) That when he was being mocked and accused, rather than coming down, because he wasn't there um, to be glorified and being crucified, but he was there to be humiliated because Jesus is so different from us. He is so honorable and upright and so not filled with the corrupt human pride that we have that their mockery did not tempt him. But he stayed because greater than the need to justify himself was his purpose to justify us. And that's what we need to see in our own self-justification. Well, what can I do to be clear that I'm right in my own eyes or in the eyes of others? What can I do to convince God that I'm worthy of being among his people. And what Jesus tells us, his life, his ministry, his message, is you're going about this all wrong, that these thoughts are not how God is leading you to think. (laughs) This is your own pride of thinking you need to prove yourself, you need to earn something. Don't you see how radically Jesus is different in what he did on your behalf and how that will change you? And so, Here's something that John Piper said. He said, self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. 
Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed so much. So here's the thing, pride is at work when things are going well in boasting, look what I've achieved. But when things are not going well, look how I've suffered, look what I've sacrificed. And the paradigm needs to be shifted. And here's the thing about the gospel. What's hard for us to understand, when the Bible talks about humility, the natural thing is I just need to beat myself up in order to make myself um, a better person. The shift of the gospel from our former way of thinking to a new way of thinking is not to go from thinking I'm the greatest thing that ever was to I'm the worst thing that ever was. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. It's from going to thinking I had been thinking that the whole world revolved around me to the realization that it actually revolves around God. That's the paradigm shift. It's not, do you feel better about yourself or do you feel worse about yourself? The question is, are you the center of the universe? And it's our pride that says, if I'm not, what do I have to live for? And it's God's grace that says, if you are, you've got problems. The good news is you're not. The world does not revolve around you and there's something remarkably freeing when God is put in the center because you're included in that. See, in our pride, we think if I'm not the center, then I'm nothing. And the gospel says the one in the center draws you into the center with him. (laughs) And it's a different shift. It's not how wonderful or how terrible you are. It's about the grace of Jesus Christ. So, verse 7. Take this phrase with you this week. It says, because he cares for you. You know, there's an interesting dynamic as, as we process faith. Do I want to believe the claim of Christianity? And look, there are lots of good reasons why Christianity is hard to believe. And so if you're struggling to make sense of it or you're asking questions, there's lots of good reasons for that. That's understandable. But it is a curious thing about human beings to ask the question, do I want to believe in God? Because we think what we're asking is, if I do, I'm going to have to give up certain things. And do I want that? Is that what I want for my life, to believe in God who's going to require me to make certain changes? And it's interesting. We think, I would rather not believe in God. The gospel message is, do you believe that God cares for you? <laughs> you know, are we fundamentally asking, do I believe that God, do I want to believe there's a God who cares for me? See, that's not how we frame the question. This is the, the adversary who comes in with our pride and says, do you really want to believe in this God who's like this, who will do these things? What about you in your life? And the question is framed wrong. The question is, do you believe that there's a God who cares for you? Do you want to believe that? And when we have pride, we actually don't. But when God is working on our pride, we start to see, wait a second, the creator of the heavens and the earth actually cares for me. (laughs) That's a lot better than my peers giving me an award. And, And that's where the process of humility is not convincing ourselves that we're terrible. The process of humility is looking at the goodness of God and allowing that to draw you in to see yourself Uh, from a new perspective. So verse 7 says that we are casting all our anxieties on him. I'm a somewhat anxious person. I don't know on the scale of of where people are, but I, uh, I more quickly project out the possibilities of the future, even though mentally I know I don't know what the future holds. Um, And I'm not a doomsday person that I assume that the worst is what will happen, but usually in the five scenarios I come up with, at least three of them are not good. Um, And there's a number of things that one is just to remind myself I don't know the future, to sit back and say, look, I'm confident that God is in charge. Uh, 
But there's something freeing about the realization that actually underneath so much of what I'm worried about is either what I think I need to do or how this is going to affect me. And actually pausing and saying, you know what, all of this anxiety, um, and this is not necessary, I'm not giving you a, a theology of anxiety, but I'm giving you an application to a, a certain kind of experience. I'm just sharing my own experience, you may be different. But I find myself in my anxiety realizing a lot of the things for which I'm anxious about are because I'm making too much of myself or too much of what I think will happen to me. This message to cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Um, so let's, look, it's enough to say cast your anxieties upon the Lord. You're, you're laying it in bed in the middle of the night and it's, there's a discipline of saying, don't think about it. It's not going to help you. Send it to God. Um, but the thing that's going to help you go back to sleep is to say, but it's because he cares for me. <laughs> this is not a mind trick. Uh, if he cares for me, then, then I don't need to be perfect and the thing that I fear failing in may happen. But if he cares for me, that's okay. And if the thing that I hope won't happen happens, but he cares for me, um, there's something on the other side of it. It's not a quick fix, but it's part of letting pride go, go and gaining maturity so that you're actually equipped for the difficulties of life. If we have an adversary, as First Peter reminds us, we need an advocate. And you defending yourself, you know, if you think about the current criminal system, we would say, no matter how bright you think you are, don't show up and try to defend yourself in the courtroom. <laughs> All this work to justify yourself, the Bible says there's an adversary who's a smarter accuser than you. But we have an advocate. We have Jesus who bore the penalty of all of the things we've done wrong, but we have the spirit that's sent into our hearts to say, there's a new voice, there's a new influence. It's not the one that's saying you're the greatest and you can do this. It's the one that says he cares for you. So you can cast your anxieties upon him. Yeah, it may get worse. It got a lot worse for Jesus, but it got a lot better. God is kind. Often it will not get worse. But we can say, but if he cares for me and if it does, I know that in the end I can trust him more than I can trust myself. Um, I want to end this point just talking about Peter. Last week, if you were here, talk about Peter's failing when he denied Jesus. You could read about this in the Gospels. Um, but at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus comes and, and restores him and says, Peter, do you love me? Three times. He denied Jesus three times. When somebody asked him, do you know this person? Uh, do you know Jesus? He says, no, I don't. And then he denied him three times. So he restores him. Peter, do you love me? Uh, and then he says, feed my sheep. He actually gives Peter leadership. Um, I'm now going to read the next section in John 21, which is interesting in the life of Peter. And I'm reading this because Peter's the one writing to us. He's the one sharing his experience. And if you look at, at if you read Peter, he's a remarkable guy. And like many people that, that are bold, he's both filled with pride. And, and you could read about lots of failings in the Bible. But he also is courageous and does remarkable things. He's a real human being. But there he is now changed because he's been very humbled. And after Jesus says, now feed my sheep, sort of restoring him to leadership in the church, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So that's Jesus' words to Peter specifically. Feed my sheep, do you love me? Now, follow me. Now, just because that was Peter's calling doesn't mean it will be ours. So Peter says, well, what about John? 
um, for whom it sounded like, if you read the end of John, it sounded like he wasn't going to die. And, and Jesus, in effect, says to Peter, I'll worry about John. You worry about yourself. Follow me. What we know is that Peter uh, suffered death for his faith. What we don't know is exactly how it happened, but the story that was told in the early church, so there's something called the Petrine Cross, which is an upside-down cross. The story, we don't, we don't know if this is true at all, but was that, that he was uh, crucified. We believe that ha- that happened. The story that I don't know is true, um, but tells you the kinds of things people spoke about this Peter who wound up being a leader in the church is that when he came for his crucifixion, he felt that he did not have the, the honor and dignity and character of Christ to die in the same way. So he asked to be crucified upside down. Um, isn't that interesting to think? <laughs> I don't have the honor to go through the kind of humiliation that showed the greatness of Jesus. Um, and so if you were going to uh, torture me and try to shame me, um, could you do it in a way that's, that's even more shameful in a sense? Now, again, I don't know that this was true, but the story being told uh, fits the transformation we see in Peter who was so self-confident that he failed until in his failing, Jesus came and showed him grace And then he was a different person. So Peter has been our teacher these last few months where we're reading him who says, look, if you're about to face suffering, trust me, follow Jesus and he will lead you through. And I think he has the credibility to say that um, he saw something that sustained him. And so so here's the last thing. I'll try to go through this more quickly now. Um, Faith grounded. So I've talked about pride exploited, humility displayed in Jesus, And now it's supposed to be displayed in us. But I want to talk about faith that's grounded. Because what happens is difficult periods have you thinking, uh, what do I believe? And and the nature of the adversary is to say, you know, think for yourself. Start from scratch. Believe in yourself. And what the the lesson of the Bible again and again is, um, if you trust in God, you'll be okay. And so there's there's a foundation there that from that foundation you can question everything. But if you step away from that foundation, anything you question is going to lead you to the wrong conclusions. And so in verse 9 it says, resist him, the adversary, firm in your faith. So on the one hand, we need to be humble enough that we slow down and we're careful. But what is it that allows us to stand? The firmness is in our faith. And so what I want to do, and I'll try to go through these quickly now, is, is to give you five examples of things that, that if you hold to as foundational assumptions will help you make sense of your experience and make wise decisions. The first is to believe that God is mighty. You can see this in verse 6 and verse 11. That's where we meet God in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1, he's so powerful that he calls things into being that are not. You know, you think of the authority who can tell somebody, go do this, and he does it. Jesus, um, uh, God, in the opening of the Bible, uh, can speak to the, to the light and the darkness and the waters and the land. And so that power is what we're resting in. That whatever we're facing, that you start to feel, I don't have the strength or the ability or the knowledge to face this. The foundation that says, but, but there is one omnipotent, omniscient, God only wise. That will give you strength. Now, the second thing is, This God is a God of all grace. If God is only powerful, he will be nothing but terrifying. But his power is exercised on your behalf because in verse 6, I'm sorry, in verse 10, he's referred to as the God of all grace. And in verse 5, he's regarded as a God who gives grace. 
And the nature of grace is not that you earn it, but the nature of grace is that this mighty God will give it to you. And he gives grace to the humble. Uh, so, so don't hold on to your pride. It's not helping you. Um, draw near to God, and he will help you. So the third thing is he cares for you, verse 7. I've already talked about that, so I won't say anything else. But that's important to remember. God cares for you because the nature of self-pity is nobody sees, nobody cares, nobody understands. We have to stop. But if God actually sent Jesus to die on our behalf, that's not true. So there's some data there. He actually cares for you. So don't spend any time needing to prove that anybody cares for you. Assume that God cares for you and you are in a much better place to take whatever the next step is. Verse, uh, the, the fourth thing, uh, God's beloved people have suffered and are suffering. This is verse 9. If the nature of pride is to isolate us, God doesn't care, nobody cares, nobody sees, there's nothing that can be done. There is something about the perspective of remembering. The ordinariness of this is not just that God is making me suffer, but that Christ has suffered and everybody in Christ will suffer but will one day be lifted up. And so for us to be mindful of global Christianity, to know that today some Christians showed up fearing that the government would arrest them. That really happened. That's not an exaggeration. That happened today. There are some people who went to church knowing that there's militant people who might come and attack and assault and kill them. Uh, There are people that went to church thinking, going to church, there may be a terrorist that will show up. People literally thought that. So we have challenges. It's easy to say everything's fine. We've got our own pride. We've got our own issues. But, but to come and say, you know what, when we gather, we're gathering with the church throughout the globe. <laughs> we remember that, that God's people are suffering in some capacity. And so you might be suffering in an invisible way that you show up today and it was hard to show up and it was risky or it was a bold step and nobody could see it and nobody thanks you, nobody congratulates you. But it's good <laughs> if you came to draw near to the Lord and know that, that there are others who came despite they're not wanting to go, they're being afraid to go. And it's that mindset that trains us to say, uh, you know what, I'm not isolated. If he cares for me, he's called me to be in a community that cares for one another. We worship the Lord. And therefore, our attitude will be different. Let's, let's cast our pride aside and let's come together. See, the adversary will isolate you from everyone. And that's why Jesus says the law is fulfilled when you love God and you love your neighbor. And so don't allow yourself to be isolated. There's no perfect church. Uh, if we, right now, are failing you, uh, that's not what we want. But we, that happens. Um, we are one of the imperfect communities that comes together to say, but, but we serve a gracious God. And therefore, there's the opportunity to, to humble ourselves and to come together and work that out. Um, all of us need to remember that we're a family and we need to remember the suffering so that when our turn comes to suffer, uh, that we know that we're not alone in it. And here's the fifth thing. God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's verse 10. This is not my tip for you. This is the scriptures telling you what happens if whatever you face, you do in Christ. Well, God will restore you. God will confirm you. God will strengthen you, and God will establish you. Um, how? Once he sees that you've done enough? Now, this is the God of all grace. He gives grace to the humble. If you're in a season where your pride is being stripped away and it's failing you, don't hold on to it. Hold on to Christ, uh, and you will be sustained. And there is another side, and the other side uh, is with the glory of Christ. And so right now, um, if we don't see it clearly, believe these things so that you make wise choices and that you don't lose heart. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are...
constantly in need of grace because our pride always surprises us. It always shows up. No matter how much we think we've dealt with it, it sneaks in to, to grab us and to destroy us. And so, Lord, help us today not to walk out of here miserable with who we are, but help us to walk out of here marveling at who you are. Lord, we pray that this would be a place of restoration, a place of healing, a, a place where, where any humble person could come and when joined with you can be a hopeful of an exaltation that frees us. Lord, as we go back into the world this week, may we go um, firm in faith uh, and ready for whatever you will um, put before us to, to follow Christ. So Lord, um, help us in that regard. We pray in his name, amen.